0: Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read just uh, verse 10 and 11, and then I'll pray and ask the Lord to help me as I preach and help you uh, as you receive the words of God. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, When they, that's the wise men, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and gold. Frankincense and myrrh. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need your help. Our hearts can be so uh, inattentive, distracted by other things. Lord, we know that there is pain and sorrow even in this Christmas season, in this very room. There are griefs and fears, there is physical pain and weakness. People have brought anxieties even about Christmas Day and the family that has gathered around them. Father, we come to you as the one who can defeat our fears, who can dismiss our anxieties, who can heal us of our sickness and raise us up out of our grief. We have no hope apart from you. And that's why we want to be so attentive to your word, because your word is living and powerful sharper than any earthly sword. It could pierce right into our hearts and discern our thoughts and motives and understand why we do what we do. And I pray that we as a people would respond to you with joy and worship. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most popular Christmas songs um, is the song Joy to the World. And it's it's sung by nearly any popular music group, uh, and you'll hear you've heard it a lot this season the song Joy to the World. And it may surprise you that, to know that this song was not written to be performed under stage lights or to be streamed across the internet as it is now. It was actually written in the 18th century first published in 1719 by a man named Isaac Watts. And the reason why he wrote it was part of a larger project to make the psalms, this book of the Bible, more singable for congregations and churches. He he wrote this song, what we sing in the most, one of the most popular Christmas songs, Joy to the World, as a way that church congregations, like our own, can actually sing psalms. So it's kind of surprising that given his purposes and given how old this song is, that it would now become one of the most popular Christmas songs uh, that continues to be performed today. And the psalm that he was uh, seeking to set into a poetic form, a Psalm 98, and I'll read some verses from that psalm. You don't need to turn there. Just listen and see if you, can, if you can catch some phrases from the song Joy to the World and how they're reflected in Psalm 98. Here are some verses from the psalm that Isaac Watts wrote uh, this song for. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. You see what he's doing there? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. So he's taken this psalm and he's putting it into poetic form and it's become an incredibly popular Christmas song. But if you think about what people are singing when they sing that psalm, it, it even gets stranger. Okay, here's what's strange about that. It's because what, what it, the song is saying, joy to the world, what's the next phrase? The Lord has come. But what the, the context of the psalm is that the Lord is coming as a judge, It seems weird that people are singing a song that has become popular in 21st century America that there is joy because somebody's coming to judge everybody. How do you get joy out of a coming king who is going to apply a perfect standard of justice to everybody in the world? I mean, how does that make people happy? And yet, for some strange reason, all the way up to the 21st century, we're singing the song, Joy to the world, the Lord, i.e., the perfect judge who is coming to judge the world, is come. Now, here's a question I want to put to you, and this is the question I'm gonna we're gonna consider throughout the course of the sermon: is how do you get joy from the coming of a Lord? And if you're thinking, if you're thinking this, I'm pretty sure that. The announcement that a king is coming to judge people won't make everybody happy. If that's what you're thinking, you're right. In fact, you've guessed the response of some people who were the very first to hear about the coming of the king. And that's why I have you turn to Matthew chapter 2. Because there are some people that heard about a king coming and they responded in different ways. So in this chapter, and actually the the verses that were read to you, we we encountered three different responses to the announcement that the Lord has come. Okay, three different responses to this announcement that there is a coming king, and I want to take this the next few moments to look at these responses one at a time. Okay, so three responses. There's a response of Herod the king, there's a response of the religious leaders, and there's the response of the wise men okay? And the question I want you to be asking is how do you get joy from the coming of a king? So first of all, Herod the king. Herod, you see uh, in verse 3, Herod the king, he represents someone who responds with insecurity. Insecurity. Because Herod believed that he only stood to lose by the coming of this king. And he was terribly afraid of losing. I, I wanted you to understand the impression this made on Herod's mind. When these, these dignitaries from hundreds of miles away, they took a trip that, la- that, that took weeks for them, for them to get there. They're these uh, very prestigious dignitaries. They're called magi, wise men. We'll look at them a little later. They come parading into the capital city, Jerusalem, and they're asking, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Now Herod's thinking, hang on just a second. I'm the king of the Jews. Right? When Herod hears the announcement that there is a coming king, there, there's one thing that comes into his mind, and that is threat. He feels threatened by this. He feels insecure because he feels like his kingdom is, he's going to lose his kingdom if there is another king who's being called king of the Jews, especially if there's one that he had no idea even existed. I mean, he's the last person to hear about this. Apparently, people that live hundreds of miles away have heard it before he did. How did this happen in his own backyard? What kind of person was Herod? Well, I'm going to give you some background of this. Herod uh, was uh, late 60s, maybe about 70 years old by the time uh, this took place. And it was the Roman Senate. We have this by contemporary historians. The Roman Senate was, was what they named him King of the Jews in around 40 or 39 B.C., Herod, he was later dubbed the Great, was an incredibly smart political strategist. He knew how to get in power and stay in power. So when he became the king of the Jews, he was already married and he had a son before he came to Judea, but he got rid of his wife and his son so that he could marry into the most powerful family at the time, the Hasmonean family. It's really cruel, but calculating and politically speaking, smart. Got rid of his wife and son, he married the beautiful Hasmonean princess Mary And he did that because he was afraid that the Hasmonean family was going to take over and, and usurp him as king. So what, what's going on here is Herod wants to secure his position as king, so he marries into the Hasmonean family. But even though he's married into the Hasmonean family, he still gets really suspicious, gets really suspicious that they're going to overthrow him. And his suspicion creates this kind of insanity, this moral insanity in his mind. He actually has his own wife, Mary Omni, killed because he's suspicious, because after all, she's still a Hasmonean, that, that she's going to be part of a plot to overthrow him. He has the two sons that Mary Omni gave him, two of his sons, he has them executed, because he's suspicious just because they're Hasmoneans that they're going to overthrow him. Because he's the king of the Jews, And no one else is going to be king of the Jews. No one else is going to overthrow him. And so given this background, it it makes perfect sense why when these people come from the east saying, Hey, Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star and we've come to worship him. Okay, no kidding. Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. This is really bad news. See, for all the effort, for all Herod's effort to secure his kingdom, he finds out that there is another king and there is great fear. So Herod responds, and and the the original question is, okay, how do you get joy out of the announcement of a coming king? Herod doesn't get joy. Why? Because he's so uh, full of fear. He stands as one who is completely insecure. And that's really where fear comes from. Here's, Here's what's behind all fear. Here's what's behind the fear that you experience. It's believing that there's something you have that you need and might lose. That's where fear comes from. Or it's believing that there's something that you want and need but might never have. Fear comes from believing that there's something that you have and you might lose. Or something that you never have that you might, that you, ha- that you might never get and you, that you need. So what Herod had was a kingdom and he was afraid that he would lose it. He felt like that's what he needed. And he was doing everything he could to keep it. And so he responded to this announcement of the coming king with insecurity. So, when the wise men come asking where is he who was born king and the Jews, Herod responds by deceitfully inquiring where he was to be born, how long ago the star appeared, so he could guess about how old this newborn king would be so that he could destroy him. Herod's insecurity, his dread, his fear mutated, it changed into cruelty because he wanted to destroy the threat. Now here's how this applies to us. My friends, you can respond to the announcement of the coming king with either fear or faith. You see, what Herod lacked here was, was faith. If only Herod knew, if only Herod knew something about his own kingdom, and that is he couldn't keep his kingdom Anyway, What he was so desperate to cling to was something that was slipping right through his fingers. Why? Because just a little later on in the same chapter, we have recorded that Herod died. It wasn't very long after the announcement of this coming king that Herod passed away and lost everything he had spent his entire adult life achieving and gaining and clinging to and strategizing to get. It was all gone. He couldn't keep it anyway. See, the irony of human nature, and and maybe this is true of you, is that people spend their entire lives clinging to things they will certainly lose, and so end up losing the thing they need the most. Jesus himself said, For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? If only Herod had understood this, what Jesus was to teach later on about the kingdom of God, Jesus said this Fear not, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. (laughs) The irony that Herod was so concerned to keep his little kingdom. And yet Jesus, the true king, was coming as one to say, Don't be afraid. The father is pleased to give you the kingdom. A kingdom that's never going to perish. A kingdom that's not, that doesn't result in fear and dread and insecurity. If only Herod had believed this, and yet because he did not, he responded with fear and insecurity. If only Herod had believed something about the true king. If only he had believed about what kind of king Jesus was. Hear the announcement that there was a king born. If only he knew that Jesus was a king who reigned not just by power like Herod did, but by power and love. You see, Herod's... Method his technique his strategy was only power Power was what would rule it all Jesus would rule by power and love You see Herod was a king who used the death of other people To prove how strong he was Jesus did something far more powerful He used his own death To prove to others how loving he was you see how infinitely more powerful Jesus is than Herod? Herod thought he could control other people by putting them to death. Jesus allowed himself to be put to death for other people. And yet Herod did not understand that, did not believe that. If only Herod had known something about his own kingdom that he could never keep it. If only he had known and believed something about the king, that is Jesus, that he was a king who ruled by power and love. And if only Herod had believed what Jesus had come to do. Jesus had come to save people just like Herod. So that they would not need to be dominated by their fears like Herod was. Jesus said it best when he said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So, Different responses to Jesus, to the coming, the announcement of the coming king. Herod stands for someone who responded with fear and not with joy. But we have another group of people here, and that is the religious leaders. And we see this in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all, here they are, all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, the religious leaders here don't get a whole lot of role in the story. Most of what they are here for is to be uh, quoting this passage from Micah chapter five and verse two that helps Herod understand where the king was to be born. But surprisingly, the thing about their response to the announcement of the king is that they seem very indifferent. You would think that of all people, it would be this group They'd be most excited about the announcement of a coming king. After all, they were the ones who knew Scripture better than anybody else. I mean, it was their job to study the Old Testament, the the Hebrew Scriptures. That was their job. They knew it so well that as soon as Herod asked them a question, they knew it right off the top of their heads. It's written. And they quote this passage to him. Of all people, they should have been the ones that were eager to hear the news that this promised anointed one, this prophet, priest, and king was, was coming and he was here. But it seems as if they're, they're entirely indifferent. Oh yeah, there's this prophecy and it says that, "On uh, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Can I go back to my office now? Yes, you may. That was their response. Indifferent. It's sobering to think that the indifference of the religious leaders would eventually morph into hostility only 30 years later. Because this is the same group. Now some of the men would have passed away over the next three decades. But this is the same group of people who most vehemently opposed Jesus Christ. The people that knew the Bible the best. The most religious people. The people that kept the strictest rules, they, of all people, should have been the most excited about the news of the coming king, but they were the most indifferent and therefore they became the most hostile. You see how the response of Herod was one of fear because he felt like he had something to, to secure and something to keep that he couldn't really keep. The response of the religious leaders was one of indifference and that indifference would mutate into hostility. It wasn't a response of faith. And yet there is another group of people. And this group is the group that responded with joy. Okay, so going back to the original question. How is it the announcement of a king produces joy? How is this possibly, this most popular song that we sing based on Psalm 98, joy to the world, why? Because the Lord has come. Well, Herod didn't think that the Lord has come as joy to the world. The religious leaders didn't think that the Lord has come means joy for the world. But there was a group of people who knew that the Lord has come does mean joy to the world. And that was these wise men. We'll look at the response now. So we look at the response of Herod, a response of fear and insecurity. The response of the religious leaders, it was a response of indifference. And now the response of the wise men, which is a response of joy that led to worship. Now... We, we mentioned these wise men, and unfortunately, I'm going to have to dispel some myths about them, okay? This is myth-busting time about the wise men. Uh, first of all, we don't know that there were just three of them. Uh, some people think, well, how did this number three get its way into our Christmas lore? Well, possibly because of the number of gifts that they offered. But there's nothing that says that there is a one-to-one correspondence between gift and wise men. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, three wise men. Well, there could have been three, but we're not told that at all. Uh, Second, the Bible does not identify them as kings. We sing, we three kings of Orient are, but the Bible doesn't say that they were kings. It says that, that the technical word for them is magi, uh, which we actually get the English word magic from. Uh, and and they were men who, who specialized in astrology, astronomy. They were the scholars. They were the, they were the scientists of, of their age, but they, they weren't kings. Now, they most likely were counselors to kings. In fact, there are some passages in the Old Testament that refer to the fact that Kings will stream to, uh, to God and maybe that's where uh, this idea has gotten from, has come from. And a third uh, thing to note about the wise men is that they were not present at the birth of Christ. So this happened as, as much as two years after the birth of Jesus. You notice that Jesus was born in a stable, but by this time uh, you, you see that they were born actually in, in a house. In verse 11 it says going into the house. So uh, at some point after Jesus' initial uh, birth, they've uh, upgraded a little bit from a stable into a house. And uh, so, But this was not the case when Jesus was born. So they, these wise men were not present at the very time of, of, of Christ's uh, birth. Now there's a four myth, it's not a very common myth, and that is that the wise men were women because no men would have stopped to ask for directions. But that myth can't be really confirmed either. We do know that they were this class of of wise sages, of prestigious scholars who had come from a a long distance. They possibly were from Persia and they enjoyed great prestige. You can see just by the the value and rarity of their gifts that they were wealthy and even by their identification as magi and by the fact that they had the wealth to take such an extended uh, journey tells us that they're men of great status. But the important thing, the thing that Matthew wants us to know is not all these speculations about precisely who they were or where they could have come from. The important thing that we we need to know is that they had been miraculously led by a star which they in their scholarship and studies had associated with the birth of a long anticipated king and what Matthew wants to know is that these men in contrast to Herod who responded with fear and insecurity and in contrast with the religious leaders who responded with indifference that mutated into hostility, these men responded with joy that led to worship. That's the important thing about the wise men. Is that in contrast to the responses that they could have had, their response was one of joy to the world, the Lord has come. Now, I need to ask another question or have us consider another question is how in the world did they respond with joy at the sight of this newborn king? Because... If you put yourself in their place and just look at the scene as Matthew describes in this passage, it's not automatically apparent why they found joy in this. After all, they were looking for a king. And the most natural place that they looked for that king was in the capital city of the domain, which was Jerusalem. But after weeks of travel, They come into Jerusalem and nobody seems to know what they're talking about. And then after going further, when they they finally see this so-called king, what do they find but a toddler, maybe? With his mother, who at that time was probably still a teenager? In a house, not a palace, not surrounded by guards and nurses and staff? How in the world was not this not a cause for disappointment for them? I mean, if you just look at the, the scene as Matthew describes it, how did they find joy in this and not disappointment? Here it is. It's because the wise men had faith. You see, the, the reason why Herod didn't find joy because he didn't have faith in who Jesus was and who this coming king was. The reason why the religious leaders didn't have joy is because they didn't have faith in who this coming king was. But the wise men, in contrast, they believed. They believed that this was the promised king. Even though what they saw with their eyes didn't confirm that. How much did they know? We're not told how much they knew about the Old Testament. It is possible that they were familiar with this prophecy, this ancient prophecy we read in Numbers 24, 17. I'll read it to you. It says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. It could be that they were familiar with this ancient prophecy. It could have been that they knew about Daniel who was a a, a Jewish captive that was brought to Babylonia and who actually was considered to be like these wise men a magi Who also saw a prophecy a vision of a coming king called the son of man who would rule? We don't know how much they knew but we do know that because of their faith that this was the coming king They found joy in him. They rejoiced exceedingly. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they didn't say, whoa, we must have made a big mistake here. They didn't say, wow, let's turn around and go back to Persia with our gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No, they saw a child and they saw his mother and they saw them in a humble house and still they fell down and they worshipped him and they offered him their gifts. Why? Because they believed that's who God had sent to be the savior of the world. It was their faith that fueled their joy, that motivated their worship because they believed that this was the king. You see, there's no joy apart from faith. It is faith in Jesus that enables our joy and fuels our joy. The reason why Jesus brings joy is because of what he came to do. The reason why we can sing joy to the world the Lord has come is because this king came not just to crush his enemies, but to be crushed for his enemies. This king king came not just to rule with power and force, but to conquer his subjects through his self-sacrificing love. That's what Jesus came to do. And those who have faith in this Jesus, this Jesus who rules by love, this Jesus who exercises power by self-sacrifice, people who believe in this Jesus, they find joy. True joy. Joy that motivates worship. Joy that motivates giving. Joy that motivates a journey like the wise men took. It's because it came from their faith. This is the message that we know so well that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So it's faith in Jesus, the king, that enables our joy. So how, how does the message, again, going back to the question that I asked at the beginning, joy to the world, the Lord has come. How does that bring joy? You've got to know this Lord. You've got to know what kind of king he is. And it could be that this announcement that a king has come immediately strikes fear into your heart. But my friends... If you know what kind of king this is. He's a king who loves you so much that he died for you. So faith in this king fuels not only our joy from the very beginning, but it, it continues to fuel our joy for the way we live our lives. Those of you who get the All Things Trinity email, it's a, it's a mailing we send out every Friday uh, to, the, to church members and, and, and attenders. I almost always, I, I write a note in that email, I almost always sign it off for your joy in Christ. And, and when I sign off that way, I'm, I'm borrowing from the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says this, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. Did you see the connection between joy and faith? Paul, as a minister of the gospel, is writing to people and he's saying, I am working for your joy, and here's how that, that's going to happen, as you stand firm in your faith. As you grow in your faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, your joy is going to be magnified proportionally. I'm working with you for your joy, that you may stand firm in your faith. That you may understand the riches of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That you'd be, as we looked at uh, recently in Colossians, that you'd be rooted and grounded and established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. So let me in closing briefly suggest to you who do have faith in Christ how Jesus brings joy. I'm just gonna give you four ways that Jesus, that faith, remember we're asking the question, how is it that the coming of the King brings joy? It's because of faith in who Jesus is. All right, let, let, what is this, how does this look practically? Just four ways here. You can jot them down if you want to. There's, there's no need, maybe even just one that, that particularly strikes uh, your, your uh, interest and attention, but how does Jesus bring joy? One way is that he motivates you to turn away from the only cause of sorrow, which is sin. Like, there's, there's one thing in life that's going to cause you sorrow. Just, just one. And that is sin. And the wages of sin is death. And yet, what Jesus does, as we remember what he's done for us on the cross, here's how bad sin is. It's so bad that Jesus had to die for it. When I think about that, it makes me want to turn away from my sin. And in turning away from my sin, I turn away from sorrow, too, and toward joy. So here's how faith in Jesus motivates joy. It reminds you to turn and motivates you to turn away from sin, which is the only cause of sorrow. Here's another way. Faith in Jesus brings you joy. He provides the exhilarating experience of forgiveness. If you know what it's like to have a debt and for suddenly that debt to be forgiven, you know the exhilarating experience of, of having a, a load of, of guilt and sin and then someone telling you it's been, it's been forgiven. Jesus does that for you. If we confess our sins, the apostle John writes in his first epistle, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's joy in that. Here's another way. Jesus brings joy because he brings you into the presence of God. How in the world can being in the presence of God be a joyful experience if you're not worthy for the presence of God? If you have the stains of sin in your life? There's only one way to stand in the presence of God and have joy and not sorrow and shame, and it's if you are made right. And the only way to be made right is by what Jesus has done. That's what Jude is talking about in the very, one of the last verses in his letter. Now to him, that is Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Finally, Jesus brings joy because he anchors your hope on what will last rather than what will fade. There are many things that could bring us joy in this life. And so many of them fade so quickly. And it could be at this Christmas season, of all seasons of the year, you struggle with joy. You struggle because you feel like you don't have joy. It's just funny how Christmas is. All these expectations about what it might be, Gathering with people you maybe haven't seen or talked much throughout the year and now you've got to figure things out and what's happened and, and, and uh, in your relationship with them over the past few months or years. Disappointments from Christmas past or fears about Christmases to come. What will anchor your joy in something that does not change? Only if you know that you have a relationship with God that's marked by love and acceptance rather than rejection. This is what Jesus can do for you. He anchors your joy in something that is solid and firm rather than something that will change and fade. And that's how we can find joy. It's through faith in Jesus and what he's done for us so that we can sing authentically, joy to the world, the Lord has come.